This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Just before the Christmas holiday, we thought we needed to insert at some point in the program our personal favorite among which I guess you'd call Christmas carols. In this case, Jingle Bells, as sung by dogs. Anyway, we do want to wish everybody a Merry Christmas and Happy New Year and Happy Hanukkah and Happy Festivus. Happy Halcyon Days to all you ancient Romans. And anyone celebrating other, we, we just say, well, season's greetings. Turns out we have quite a bit of heavy stuff to hit today, and I just don't want to jump into it. So I want to start instead with an oddball item. How about this headline? U.S. finally giving boot to official foot measurement. What's going on? Well, it turns out, I did not know this, but there are actually two different definitions of the 12-inch measurement, which we know as the foot. Some land surveyors use what's known as the U.S. survey foot. Others use the definition that's more accepted by the broader world, the international foot. The difference is quite small, and if you're keeping score, the international foot is the smaller one. It adds about an eighth of an inch of difference when you measure a mile, which means that the United States is about 28.3 feet wider when measured using the international foot instead of the survey foot. Now, how this difference arose is not mentioned in the article, but it does note that back in 1959, the federal government mandated that everyone use the international foot but it allowed surveyors to keep using the old U.S. survey foot for a while. That while is now stretched into 60 years. But it's going to end in 2020, says the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and the National Institute of Standards and Technology. Turns out that surveyors in 40 U.S. states and territories are still using the larger U.S. foot. The rest use the international foot. Michael Dennis, the project manager for NOAA's National Geodetic Survey, which is tasked with taking into account the curve of the Earth, says, We have chaos. It caused trouble when they were planning for high-speed rail out here in California. And caused trouble up when they were trying to make a bridge between Oregon and Washington, in which Oregon uses the international foot and Washington was using the U.S. foot. Michael Dennis, from NOAA, relayed a horror story one surveyor sent him. A contractor from a state that uses the U.S. foot planned a building in the glide path of a major airport in a state that uses the international foot. The confusion over the two different feet caused delays, extra cost, and a redesign of the building to be one floor shorter, just to be safe, I guess. Even though the difference would have only been an eighth of an inch if the building had been a mile high. In a webinar, Michael Dennis said, The U.S. foot sounds very patriotic, very American. Then there's the word international foot, which sounds kind of New World Order. UN sanctioned, maybe. Maybe with a whiff of socialism thrown in. 
But he adds, it makes sense to be using the same measurement stick as the rest of the world to save time and eliminate embarrassing errors. Well, maybe, but the rest of the world uses the metric system anyway. So I don't suppose this question arises in Denmark very often over, you know, how many international feet is that? And just for the record, we here at Radio Parallax continue to rely upon the mile over the kilometer because we think it's a superior unit of measurement. Well, at least horizontal measurements here on Earth. Doesn't necessarily work as well in astronomy. Although, once you get out of the solar system, everybody's using light years and parsecs anyway. Anyway, but when it comes to weather reports, we'll take Fahrenheit over Celsius any day. All right, we have to make some mention of what I suppose be regarded as the biggest national story of this week, which is that Donald date, which is that Donald J. Trump, the alleged president of the United States. Well, that's unfair. He really is the president of the United States. I guess the alleged part would come in in acting like the president of the United States. But regardless, he's going to face impeachment, officially. Yes, president number 45 is also president number four when it comes to finding himself in this pickle. Democrats and the House of Representatives have put forward two articles of impeachment against Trump, charging him with abusing the power of his office by soliciting Ukraine to interfere in the 2020 presidential election and with obstruction of Congress by stonewalling its subsequent investigation. The most horrible thing about this is that the entire effort seems to rest with one party, the Democratic Party. Republicans are stonewalling the whole thing, which they're certain to do in the Senate, but that's a story for another day. The fact that Mitch McConnell says he's going to take his orders from the White House means they, they may want to reconvene if the first to go, go around at this fails and take another whack at it and get Mitch McConnell to recuse himself. But I digress. The first article of impeachment focuses in on Trump's, what's described as corruptly withholding $391 million in military aid from Ukraine, along with Trump's efforts to seek from Ukraine's president an improper personal political benefit. To wit, he pressured Ukraine to announce investigations into former Vice President Joe Biden as part of what's being called a conspiracy theory that Ukraine colluded with Democrats to interfere in the 2016 election. The second article of impeachment accuses Trump of obstructing Congress's Ukraine investigation by ordering executive branch agencies and current and former officials not to comply with subpoenas. The resolution notes, in the history of the republic, no president has ever ordered the complete defiance of an impeachment inquiry or sought to obstruct and impede so comprehensively the ability of the House of Representatives to investigate, quote, high crimes and misdemeanors, unquote. It is worthy of noting that Democratic leaders decided not to charge Trump with obstruction of justice for his efforts to stymie special counsel Robert Mueller's Russia investigation. In his report, Mueller documented 10 possible acts of obstruction by Trump and referred them to Congress. Yeah, great. Judiciary Committee Chairman Jerry Nadler wanted to include the Mueller allegations, but House Speaker Nancy Pelosi decided against it. Commenting all of this in Slate.com was Fred Kaplan, who said Trump's presidency has been the most corrupt in more than 100 years. So why is the impeachment resolution so narrow? There's not a word about the president violating the emoluments clause by using his office to make millions of dollars from lobbyists and foreign officials visiting his hotels, or the egregious and criminal acts of obstructing justice outlined in the Mueller report. 
Writing in the Washington Post, Jennifer Rubin said nothing is stopping Democrats from bringing up Trump's past misconduct as evidence in a Senate trial. But she notes the Democrats were smart to make their articles of impeachment surgically precise. The idea that Trump's attempt to corrupt the next election presents a clear and present danger to our democracy and should be easy for every American to understand. In nymagazine.com, Jonathan Chait said, Indeed, Trump has brazenly continued his Ukraine scheme despite being caught. Rudy Giuliani just went back to Ukraine where he's meeting with deposed government officials and Kremlin-connected oligarchs to dig for dirt on Biden. Trump has even asked Giuliani to prepare a report on his Ukraine, quote, findings, unquote, about Biden, not about corruption in general, which supposedly was what so deeply concerned him. Anyway, we, like everybody else, are curious to see where this is going to go. Senate Republicans are seeking to have a vote on this without calling any witnesses whatsoever. Mitch McConnell is seeking a speedy trial to protect vulnerable GOP senators up for re-election from potentially damaging votes on calling controversial witnesses. Trump is said to favor a drawn-out trial. He's apparently hoping to turn it into a spectacle, which he thinks is his best chance to hurt Democrats in the election. Good God. Anyway, it could be worse. We could be South Africa. The current issue of The Economist notes that down in South Africa, the wheels of justice are turning at last, though too slowly. Their article, Dateline Pretoria, says, So bad was corruption under Jacob Zuma, South Africa's president from 2009 to 2018, that people referred to it as state capture. Cyril Ramaphosa, Zuma's successor, thinks it cost the country about $95 billion in looted funds and lost GDP. And that is just a tangible expense. State capture also deepened a pervasive sense that 25 years after apartheid, South Africans are dangerously short of trust in each other and hope for the future. The person charged with restoring both is Samila Batohi, who left the International Criminal Court to take charge of South Africa's National Prosecution Authority, the NPA, last February. Her appointment is central to Ramaphosa's efforts to clean house. The Economist notes that few doubt her ability, but her success is far from assured. The first problem is that the NPA, like other anti-crime institutions in South Africa, got eviscerated during Mr. Zuma's time in office. The crooks did not simply loot state-owned companies, but systematically dismantled the organization meant to fight crime. Mokotedi Mufeshi, the acting director when the former president took office, dropped corruption charges against Zuma, which have since been reinstated, his successor, Menzi Similani, was found unfit for the job by the country's highest court, which said his appointment was irrational and unconstitutional. Gosh, nobody used those words against Brett Kavanaugh or Neil Gorsuch. Then came Nomkojo Jiba, whose husband's criminal record had been expunged by Zuma. An official inquiry found in April that Ms. Jiba had lied under oath, failed to follow court orders, and compromised the independence of the NPA. Well... We're pulling for justice in South Africa and America. Anyway, back to Trump. In this case, Dateline Hollywood, Florida. Evidently, some Jewish groups are expressing outrage over Trump's speech to pro-Israel conservatives last week, in which he said Jews will become, quote, my biggest supporters, unquote, to protect their wealth from his 2020 rivals. He called Jews in business like real estate brutal killers and not nice people who had no choice but to back him over a Democrat like Elizabeth Warren. Trump said most Jews cheered his moving the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem, while his critics don't love Israel enough. The remarks drew laughs and chants of four more years. 
But several organizations called Trump's stereotypes and demands that Jews demonstrate loyalty to Israel anti-Semitic. Days later, Trump signed an executive order allowing the federal government to withhold funds from colleges fostering anti-Semitism. The order says calling Israel a racist endeavor is evidence of anti-Semitic intent, a claim some believe could suppress legitimate protests. Reportedly, Jared Kushner, the president's son-in-law and senior White House advisor, pushed for this executive order, which will allow Trump to take further steps to combat anti-Israel sentiments and divestment movements on college campuses by requiring colleges and universities to treat these movements as discriminatory or risk losing their funding. We've said it before, we'll say it again, in our opinion, objections to the policies of the state of Israel do not, on the face of it, constitute anti-Semitism. So we're taking a slight digression into what's going on in other countries. Let's, let's do it again. We've talked on this show at length in the past about our, our phony drug war. And wouldn't you know it, it turns out that a former top Mexican security official has been arrested in the U.S. on cocaine trafficking charges from 2006 to 2012. Reportedly, Gennaro Garcia Luna was the frontman of then-President Felipe Calderon's crackdown on the cartels. More than 200,000 people, 200,000 people have died in violence linked to the drug trade and the crackdown. Garcia Luna helped create Mexico's federal police, a supposedly incorruptible force modeled on the FBI. But U.S. prosecutors say that at least twice he was handed briefcases containing up to $5 million by El Chapo Guzman. And in return, the cartel got safe passage for drugs and information about rivals. The arrest is a win for Mexican President Andres Manuel López Obrador, who has long argued that previous administrations were in the pockets of the cartels. Now, we think what would be really nice is if folks on this side of the border started to crack down on those officials here who seem to look the other way as drugs are transported from Mexico to American cities. By the way, that sort of thing can be a very dangerous business for investigative journalists that want to look into it. Just witness what happened to Gary Webb. And if you're unfamiliar with what happened to the late, great Mr. Webb, go to our website, radioparallax.com, and noodle around. See what you can find there. We, we've talked about it quite a bit. We're not doing any more today. We've also talked quite a bit on this program about deception at the highest level, about what the government is really up to. The greatest example of this, greatest single example of this in the past half century might be the Pentagon Papers, wherein Daniel Ellsberg, formerly of the Pentagon and the Rand Corporation, secretly copied a study conducted by the Central Intelligence Agency, I believe, and Rand, uh, into what really got us down that wrong road in Vietnam. The report was classified. Ellsberg thought the public should know about it. And now we do, thanks to his efforts. It's a sad story filled with a lot of lessons that people are probably not uh, learning much from. Well, again, the public, or a lot of the public, knew we were being lied to. But unfortunately, the powers that be spent a lot of money massaging public opinion to convince them that the critics were wrong and they were right. Well, actually, the critics were not wrong. And the critics who have looked at what's going on in Afghanistan and asked, what the hell? Well, it turns out, looks like they weren't wrong either. Writing in nymag.com, Sarah Jones said, in contrast to the bloody debacle in Iraq, 
the U.S.-led war in Afghanistan is still viewed by many Americans as a necessary war. But this week, the illusion died. The Washington Post just published the Afghanistan Papers, a trove of 2,000 documents obtained after a three-year legal battle with the Office of the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction. The papers revealed in shameful, sickening detail that from its outset, the longest war in U.S. history, 18 years and counting, has been unwinnable, a black hole sucking in money and lives. We should pause at this point to note that World War II, the most massive war the U.S. was ever engaged in, lasted three years and ten months. The Afghanistan war, by contrast, is entering its 19th year. Sarah Jones notes that the administrations of George W. Bush, duh, Barack Obama, that's worth, that's worth emphasizing, Barack Obama and Donald Trump have all, falsely insisted that the U.S. was making some progress. The Afghanistan war has claimed at least 115,000 lives, including 2,400 U.S. military personnel, and a cost to the U.S. of, are you ready for it? About $2 trillion. That's according to the New York Times, which goes on to lay out what I think might be the most startling statistic we have ever put on the air in our almost... 18 years of of, of these efforts. And for this one, dear listener, I hope you're sitting down. Because according to these numbers, which come out of the Office of the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction, it turns out that those reconstruction efforts alone have cost $133 billion, which is more than we spent, even adjusted for inflation, Again, more than we spent, even adjusted for inflation, to rebuild all of Western Europe after World War II. And for what? Adrian Bonenberger, writing in the NewRepublic.com, said, good for the Washington Post. But you could have just asked us. Those of us on the ground in Afghanistan knew all along that the war was an aimless train wreck. Yes, We built a few schools, medical clinics, and roads, and annihilated countless, quote, high-value, unquote, targets, with, he adds, the occasional wedding party thrown in. But the troops being cycled in and out were fighting and dying to achieve objectives that no elective leader could fully articulate. Apparently, Afghanistan papers even have some uh, conservative voices uh, being raised in outrage. The AmericanConservative.com notes that the Post titled its scoop after the Pentagon Papers. The Afghanistan Papers should have the same impact. Let this be the end of Americans dying in and for Afghanistan. Bring the troops home. I would have to disagree somewhat about the impact of the Pentagon Papers in 1971. The public was already being turned against the Vietnam War and had been for some years. This just, you know, added more flames to the fire. But the war continued for years past that point. Writing in TheAtlantic.com, David Graham said, a sudden withdrawal is unlikely. Back in 1971, when the Pentagon Papers were published, the public could still be shocked that their leaders could be duplicitous. We are no longer that naive. I'd like to interject my own editorial opinion at this point. Yes, it's true. There didn't seem to be any tangible benefits to continuing this war in Afghanistan. We asked years ago, why, why is this war going on? And we were told, well, they're, they're, they're training up the police forces over there quite a bit better. 
or so they said, even though a lot of them took, uh, took, their, <laughs> took their training and then went back to their villages, or worse, were actual infiltrators from the Taliban. But you really can't measure the value to some of the Afghanistan war by, you know, houses, roads, hospitals, police forces, infrastructure, what Lily built, because that's not really what's driving the game. Some folks got paid that $133 billion for all this supposed rebuilding. And one has to imagine that those contractors are very happy with that situation. And then pulling the camera back, $2 trillion over 18 years? We collective taxpayers are out the $2 trillion. But that means an awful lot of money, maybe something like $2 trillion in the various bank accounts of people who supply the Pentagon with the tools of the trade. Therefore, we'd have to agree with the Atlantic.com that a sudden withdrawal is unlikely. Anyway, let's lighten the tone here briefly by doing our favorite, the good, the bad, and the ugly. the week magazine it was a good week last week for old plumbing with the claim by president trump that because of the new eco-friendly water saving commodes people are flushing toilets 10 times 15 times as opposed to once well the truth is we're not that crazy about those toilets either one frequently has to flush them more than once to achieve the desired goals And personally, I do think one does have to question the uh, utility of blasting water under high pressure, depending on how some of these work, into a bowl filled with urine and feces. But in the end, the president is not correct. People are generally not flushing them 10 times or 15 times, as opposed to once. On the other hand, it was a bad week last week for vegans, at least possibly, because of new research, which demonstrates that plants emit high-pitched sounds, ultrasound actually, too high for humans to hear, when they either lack water or have their stems cut. The study's authors noted that these findings can alter the way we think about the plant kingdom, which has been considered to be almost silent until now. I find that pretty interesting. We need to, need to look into that in future programs. This seems quite credible to us and makes me want to scoff at the scoffers who are saying things like, oh, we all know plants don't have vocal cords. Which is undeniably true, but nothing that's, uh, you know, been claimed by the, this research. And it was an ugly week last week for possibly freedom of speech, but definitely the satanic temple, with news that an American Airlines flight crew ordered a passenger to remove her Hail Satan t-shirt or be kicked off the plane. Swati Rooney Goyal, age 49, belongs to the satanic temple, an atheist group that uses tongue-in-cheek Satan worship, to test religious freedom laws. The crew delayed the plane's departure until Goyal donned a different shirt. American Airlines later apologized, saying discrimination has no place in American Airlines. And finally, it was a good week for going by the book, but a bad week for common sense with this item. A Florida girl has been suspended from middle school for using a butter knife to cut a peach. 
Ronald Suto, father of the 11-year-old, admits she technically violated her school's, quote, weapons policy, unquote, but said she used the knife to share a peach with a friend and that it is a dull utensil from a set made for toddlers to teach them how to eat properly. All right, let's take our eyes off planet Earth momentarily and look up into the skies. On December 7th, Comet 2I Borisov made its closest approach to our sun, but that wasn't a very close approach. The closest it got and is going to get was about two astronomical units from the sun, which puts it well past the orbit of Mars. It's going to get slightly closer to us in the next week or so, but it'll still be, you know, a long way away, still about two astronomical units. But I do recommend, dear listener, that you pull up the animations which have been created to show the actual path of this comet through the solar system because, because it, looks, it looks really bizarre. These animations show the plane in which uh, most of the planets operate and also show that this planet is coming. Well, if you imagine the solar system is like a, a vinyl record, like a rock being dropped to the ground right through the record. The path of the comet is being bent by the gravity of the sun, but it's moving so quickly. One can get the idea, just looking at the path of this thing, that, you know, it ain't coming back. It is just whizzing through the local neighborhood. All right, let's go back down through the Earth's atmosphere for a final three minutes of this segment. And note, to our dissatisfaction, that uh, something else from America has apparently caught on around the globe. Some folks aren't very happy about it, and that would be Black Friday. The Week magazine reports that an editorial, El Correo in Spain, said that as if Halloween and Santa weren't enough, America has inflicted yet another excuse for superfluous consumption on the world. Black Friday, that sales frenzy that takes place the day after Thanksgiving in the U.S., is now observed all over the globe, from Russia to China to Brazil. Shoppers have come to expect bargains online and in stores. This imported tradition is wreaking havoc on our smaller merchants who struggle to continuously compete with the promotions offered by big box stores and massive e-tailers. And it's not just Spain that's unhappy about this. Down in Brazil, Rodrigo Leite, writing in O Estado de São Paulo, said the scenes in Brazil were embarrassing. People waited in line for hours at a Burger King in Brasilia to snag six burgers for three fifty and they wrestled one another to get cheap flat-screen TVs in Sao Paulo. He suggests that we adopt a different holiday, which is also born in the U.S., which only a few Brazilians know about. That would be Giving Tuesday. He notes that on Giving Tuesday down in Brazil, they collected $285,000 to give to charity, which is a bit of a far cry from the $620 million spent on Black Friday. He said, next year, let's try to do better. Wouldn't it be nice to make... Giving Tuesday bigger than Black Friday. Instead of Americans' acquisitiveness, let's emulate their generosity. Something else Radio Parallax would question is the fact that Americans cut down 15 million Christmas trees a couple years ago, the latest year for which data is available, which requires about 19 0.7 square miles of land. I know, they look pretty and all. A friend of mine had one nicely decorated for his Christmas party last week, but, geez, maybe he was trying to get a live green planet. Or if you live in an apartment, find some little, you know, little bonsai-type Christmas tree. Anyway, let's take a break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. Tuesday, 
just begin.